So, Ben, what is the official new name of the Pfizer COVID vaccine? The official name of the Pfizer COVID vaccine is Comirnaty. Um, <laughs> Can you just yes. spell that for me? Comirnaty? Comirnaty. C-O-M-I-R-N-A-T-Y. It's quite a mouthful, but it's a amalgam of four different words and acronyms. So we have COVID-19 in there, community, immunity, and then mRNA. Hmm. You know, that's the that's the technology that this vaccine is based on. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 25th. And this week, we have some big news from the FDA. The FDA has approved the first COVID-19 vaccine. The vaccine has been known as the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine and will now be marketed as Comirnaty. Later in the show, we're also going to hear from our colleague Tracy Jan. She has been asking tough questions of companies that made a lot of promises last summer in our moments of racial reckoning. And it turns out that they've only sort of kept those promises. What we ended up finding was that, okay, so there was like almost $50 billion that were pledged. More than 90% of that were actually in the form of loans and investments, things that corporations could stand to profit from. But first, the Pfizer vaccine is now officially FDA approved. And you might be wondering, wait, wasn't the Pfizer vaccine already FDA approved? And yes, partially. For months, we had been receiving the vaccine under emergency use authorization. And that is a special regulatory designation the FDA gives when it wants to get a drug or a vaccine out very quickly in times of an emergency, uh, like the pandemic that we're in. Now the Pfizer vaccine has received full approval, so no asterisks, the whole shebang. Ben Guarino is a health and science reporter for The Post, and he explained what this actually means, that FDA regulators have finished sifting through mountains of safety data, that they've visited manufacturing facilities, and that this vaccine has gone through the same rigorous review as dozens of other vaccines. And this should be seen as, you know, another confidence builder. You know, we were already confident in the vaccines that they work and they're safe and effective. But this is like the cherry on top in terms of that these vaccines work and you should not be worried about getting them. Now, people will be able to keep getting the Pfizer vaccine even after the end of this public health emergency. And Pfizer can advertise the vaccine by its brand name, Comirnaty. We checked in with Ben to talk about why this full approval distinction matters, who it covers, and how it might actually affect who ends up getting vaxxed. So the Pfizer vaccine has been officially approved for people who are 16 and older to get two shots three weeks apart. So that's the typical course of the vaccine that most people would have been getting when they were getting the Pfizer vaccine before the approval. What it doesn't cover, but is still available, are children 12 to 15 can get the vaccine, exact same dosage, same three weeks apart, but that's still under the emergency use authorization. And that's also true for 
people who have weakened immune systems who want to get a third dose. That will be under the EUA. There have not been third doses approved as part of this official stamp from the FDA. And what does this mean for a potential approval for children's vaccines for kids under 12? So not much. It's another endorsement of the confidence in the vaccine overall. But what needs to happen for children who are under 12 is that the Food and Drug Administration regulators need to go through and look at safety in children and also the dosage. So there's this phrase that a lot of immunologists like to use when thinking about this, and they say, Little kids aren't just miniature adults. Kids are not just scaled down adults. They have different immune systems and metabolism. That is NIH director Francis Collins. You really have to do the careful trials to make sure you got the dose right and there aren't any surprises. Realistically, George, I don't think we're going to see approval for kids under 12 until late in 2021. So obviously a huge problem that the U.S. is having right now is the continued presence of skepticism around the vaccine, people who refuse to get vaccinated, who don't believe that it's safe. How do you think this full FDA approval will affect that and people's willingness to to get vaccinated now for the first time? Optimistically, I would say that it will convince some people. So we know about 80 million to 85 million Americans who are eligible have not received a coronavirus vaccine yet. There's been polls that indicate maybe three in 10 people who haven't had the vaccine yet say, well, they were going to wait and see until the vaccine had full FDA approval. Hmm. I've talked to other behavioral scientists who have collected data that suggests it's much less than that. Maybe three to five percent of people who aren't vaccinated are going to get the vaccine now. That's still great. That's still low millions of people if we're talking three to five percent. But I don't know. I don't think we're going to go out and see, say, half of all unvaccinated Americans go out and get the vaccine now after FDA approval. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to believe that people who are refusing to get vaccinated or who don't trust the science around this are going to be persuaded by the difference between the emergency use authorization and the full approval. I think that's right. I What I've been thinking about a lot is how this pandemic has its been a lesson in science and public health for all of us and kind of in different phases. We were learning about the coronavirus and then we were learning about airborne transmission and masks and now vaccines and mRNA technology and now the regulatory process of the FDA. And for a lot of people, this idea of emergency use authorization, they were unfamiliar with it. Um, When you get a drug or a vaccine that is available under emergency use, uh, if you look at the pamphlet that you're supposed to receive, it'll include language saying like it's experimental. And I think Mm -hmm. for some people to read that and see it, that might be a source of hesitancy, especially when we have people who are promoting vaccine disinformation and misinformation, they can kind of exploit that terminology that can almost become a meme among the skeptical that, um, oh, I'm going to wait because it's experimental or I don't want to get it because it's under emergency use and there hasn't been enough data. When in reality, there's been a ton of data showing that it's safe, but that language can be exploited. And I think that's why some of the critics of the FDA who were saying it wasn't moving fast enough. I think those were the concerns that they had, that even though 
this window of time is very fast by FDA's normal standards. That's still a lot of time for misinformation to proliferate. So I, I think that's where mm-hmm. their concerns come from. Interesting. Yeah. And talk more about the length that this approval process has taken. Uh, we've all heard the stories about the breakneck speed at which this vaccine was developed. And I think that's the source of a lot of the concerns that people have about how fast moving this process is. So how fast has it really gone and what should we read into the the speed at which this has now gotten to full approval? So what has to happen for the FDA to approve a drug is that a company has to submit an application. So Pfizer BioNTech filed uh, for full approval in early May and then four months later. So now in August, we have this official approval. And that's really fast by FDA's traditional standards. That's a record time for a vaccine. And although it's fast, I want to emphasize there's no indication that regulators have sacrificed any kind of rigor when they're doing this. Acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock made that very clear on Monday. But we want to underscore that our efforts to move as quickly as possible have in no way sacrificed scientific standards or the integrity of our process. They reviewed, you know, 340,000 pages of data to do this. So we should be confident. Personally, you know, I was already very confident when these vaccines were made available under the emergency youth authorization. Now that they're fully approved, it's just even more confidence on top of that. We've also had discussions around the role that vaccine mandates play in vaccination rates here in the U.S. And this idea that really the only thing that truly makes people change their minds is if their job is dependent on being vaccinated or their ability to go to school. So how will this full approval status affect employers and schools' willingness to really go through with these vaccine mandates? This is where a lot of the behavioral scientists and people who study vaccine confidence say is really going to move the needle. So it's going to be less about individual decisions and more about employers or universities or institutions like that mandating vaccines. We've already started to see that happen. So now that the Pfizer vaccine has been approved, the department is prepared to issue updated guidance requiring all service members to be vaccinated. This week, the Pentagon announced that it was uh, accelerating its plans to mandate vaccines for troops. Uh, The health of the force uh, is, as always, uh, our military and our civilian employees, families and communities is a top priority. In New York City, uh, teachers have to be vaccinated. And the idea there is that people who are kind of hesitant, if they're employer tells them to do it, that will be persuasive to a lot of people. And it kind of has a twofold effect. One, employees themselves are protected against the virus, obviously, but it also builds this social norm uh, when your buddy at work is vaccinated and they say, oh, you know, actually the vaccine was fine. Maybe I had a sore arm or a little bit of a fever afterwards, but it demystifies the vaccine. It makes it this this thing that is part of the community, especially if if an employer has a big uh, footprint, if their workforce is, is concentrated in a community and and the folks around you start to get vaccinated. It really takes some of the uncertainty out of the equation, which I think is is important for people who are hesitant. So this is full approval for the Pfizer vaccine. But what about the Moderna and Johnson and Johnson vaccines? Those approval processes are underway. So as I mentioned earlier, a 
drug maker, a pharmaceutical company has to submit data and its application in order to get the ball rolling at the FDA. Moderna and Johnson and Johnson have started to submit data uh, for their approval process. I believe that Moderna did so about a month after Pfizer and then Johnson and Johnson they've done so on a on a kind of rolling basis. I think if any indication that the Pfizer vaccine was approved, um, the Moderna vaccine is based on this mRNA technology that's quite similar. So if I was Moderna, I'd see this as a good sign. But obviously, FDA has to review the manufacturing process, go through that safety data with a fine-tuned comb. So I would just say, you know, stay tuned. Do we know what Moderna's official vaccine name is going to be? Is it going to be as uh, difficult to pronounce as Comirnaty? Moderna, in my completely unbiased opinion, has an awesome name, and it's called Spikevax. I think that's just (laughs) great. I think it's, you know, we get the spike from the spike protein and the vax from the vax, and man, that just rolls right off the tongue. I feel like it sounds like a cable TV channel. <laughs> like somewhere oh my between my... <laughs> Spike TV and Cinemax. Um, I think it sounds pretty metal. My wife thinks it sounds like a knockoff Mountain Dew brand. Ben Guarino writes about health and science for The Post. On Wednesday, Delta Airlines announced that it will require employees to be vaccinated or face weekly testing and a health insurance surcharge. In a statement, the airline CEO said that with the FDA's full approval of the Pfizer vaccine, quote, the time to get vaccinated is now. Renny Svernovsky produced this story. After the break, our colleague Tracy Jan follows the money. We'll be right back. So immediately after George Floyd was murdered, you just heard from a bunch of corporations. You had CEOs tweeting Black Lives Matter, many for the first time. You had corporations left and right releasing all sorts of um, racial justice pledges, promising to spend millions of dollars to address, quote, systemic racism, end quote. Tracy Jan covers race and the economy for The Post. And when she saw all these promises coming out last year, she had the same reaction that I think a lot of us had. She was skeptical. I was skeptical. We were all skeptical. Was this really anything more than essentially a PR move for these companies to make these big pledges? So I forgot about all of these promises that these companies made. I think many of us forgot about them. But Tracy and a team of reporters at The Post actually went back to look at these promises and to see where the money went, whether tens of billions of dollars pledged by these companies actually did anything to help people of color. We focused on the top 50, the most valuable publicly traded companies. That includes everything from Apple, Facebook, you know, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, Pfizer, Netflix, PayPal, all the big names that you would hear, and even some that you may not know of. So these were significant promises that we heard from these companies about how they were really going to change fundamentally where their money's going, what kinds of causes that they're supporting in the wake of George Floyd's death. But now it's been a little bit over a year since we heard some of those promises. And what has actually transpired? 
I mean, it cannot be understated. These were unprecedented commitments from corporate America towards the causes of racial justice. That's according to economists and historians who study this. And what we ended up finding was that, okay, so there was like almost $50 billion that were pledged. More than 90% of that were actually in the form of loans and investments, things that corporations could stand to profit from versus pure philanthropy, which is fine. You know, there's argument to be made that pure philanthropy can only do so much and corporations really need to change how they do business. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's, it's not $50 billion in charity. I mean, we weren't surprised to see that the vast majority went towards economic equality. I mean, this is corporate America. This is their wheelhouse. They're going to be focusing on making loans to increase Black homeownership. They're donating to HBCUs. Um, their healthcare companies are doing things to address the racial, racial health gap versus the racial wealth gap. But we were very surprised that such a tiny amount actually went towards addressing criminal justice reform the very cause that sent millions of people across the country to protest after Floyd's murder. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that police reform and criminal justice reform are kind of this third rail for what corporations want to actually donate to? I mean, it's very controversial, right? The companies that did give to criminal justice reform, the vast majority of them gave money to mass incarceration reform. So that's less controversial than, say, defunding the police. When you have these corporate titans tweeting Black Lives Matter and you look at which organizations are tied to Black Lives Matter, we found that only eight companies gave to those groups. And one of the key platforms of some of the Black Lives Matter groups is defunding the police. And so that's something that corporate America may find a little bit more inflammatory. And I'm curious, what else surprised you from what you saw in these numbers? It surprised me that more than 90% of these commitments were actually in the form of loans and investments. And the reason that surprises me is because that's an opportunity cost, right? The fact that J.P. Morgan Chase pledged an additional $28 billion to Black and Latino borrowers in the form of home loans and business loans above what they were doing before. Bank of America pledged $15 billion additional dollars in mortgages to Black Americans. And the reason that surprised me is because, you know, when talking to J.P. Morgan, they're saying this is the largest lending commitment we've made to Black and Latino borrowers in the history of J.P. Morgan. But the question is, if it's a business opportunity, why was this not being done before? So what you're saying is that basically a company that provides these loans would be making money off the loans. They'd be making interest. And so in the past, they were leaving money on the table by not pushing in the direction of providing more of these loans to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get it from them. That's exactly right. I mean, in 1947, President Harry Truman commissioned this Federal Civil Rights Committee. And there was a big report done. And it was chaired by the president of General Electric. And that report pointed out how discrimination against Black people drags down the U.S. economy. So it's the same point today. There is a business imperative. There's an economic imperative, not just a racial justice imperative to address this, the racial wealth gap. 
You know, thinking back to last summer when these companies first made so many of these promises or made these big, bold pronouncements about who they were going to help and how they were going to help and how this is a moment where they're really rethinking their their mission in the world. I mean, I think a lot of us, I would say speaking for myself, definitely I felt a sense of skepticism about these promises and about whether these corporations really have the interests of Black people at heart. Do you feel like there is reason for skepticism here or is there a limitation to how much we should believe companies when they say that they are going to be donating infinite amounts of money to causes to help Black people? I don't want to be completely cynical here, but I spoke openly with Netflix and PayPal, for example, about their investments in Black banks. And they were very, very honest about how difficult that was, right? They thought that, great, we're going to do this great thing. We're going to put all this capital. They were going to infuse these Black banks with uh, deposits. And great, this this is something that Netflix started and other companies started doing, a lot of tech companies. But when you talk to the Black banks, they're like, we can't take on all this cash because we need equity. And These corporations aren't really set up, a lot of them, to be able to give equity, to be long-term investors in these Black banks. J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, they've given equity to these um, smaller Black banks. But these other well-meaning companies that thought they were doing this great thing, they were seriously wrestling with it. And they were trying to work with each bank that they were trying to deposit money in on how best to do it so that it actually benefits them. What do you think is the big takeaway of this story in terms of the state of our economic system as a country? One of the big takeaways here is that corporations alone cannot fix all the racial justice problems in this country. No matter how much people look to them, you know, in terms of their political platform, all the money at their disposal. I mean, the fact of the matter is the grants that they committed were amounted to less than 1% of their net profits, of their net income earned last year. So it wasn't even like it was a huge, I would say, financial commitment on their behalf, even though it was unprecedented. What's really important is that in addition to committing money and changing how business is done, they really have to look at internally at their policies. If you're a bank, for example, are you examining how you give loans? Are there racial disparities in the loans that you make? If there are racial disparities in terms of who gets loans from your bank, where is the problem coming? Is it the credit issue? Is it coming from appraisals? There's research that shows that with all of those things, there are racial disparities. Um, Black people are disadvantaged when it comes to obtaining credit at a affordable rate compared to white people, even if they have the same financial background. We have to look at their internal organization and their structure, not just the diversity of who's in charge, but what types of policies are they promoting, whether it's lending or advertising? Are they doing business with Black suppliers? Many of these corporations actually have committed to spending millions of dollars more in future years with Black suppliers. I think that will make a big difference in terms of opportunities for minority-owned businesses.
Tracy Jan covers race and the economy for The Post. Her reporting includes a data breakdown with specifics of where the money came from and where it went. You should definitely check it out online. It's an exhaustive, fascinating example of accountability journalism with a lot of nuance in the numbers. We'll put a link to Tracy's story in our show notes and at postreports.com. The story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Mohammed and Renny Svernovsky. We also want to update you on some late-breaking news and a story that we've been following. Last night, the Supreme Court rejected the Biden administration's efforts to end the Remain in Mexico program. That was a controversial policy started by President Trump that forced people seeking asylum in the U.S. to wait on the other side of the southern border in Mexico. It is still not totally clear what this move by the Supreme Court will mean for Remain in Mexico. But this news made us want to share, again, a two-part story that we ran last month about what living under this program is actually like for an asylum seeker. There's a recording of Nancy calling her family, having already fallen into the hands of her kidnappers, and you can hear the stress in her voice. She's whispering and in a low voice, speaking very quickly, giving instructions to her family, basically telling them we have fallen into the hands of the Zetas, which is a dangerous cartel in northern Mexico. Yo creo que me Ramiro porque como es él el que me va a recibir, pero que el día que solo 500 dólares te veía que todo se le pagó que ya. That story is called Marooned in Matamoros. We'll put a link to those episodes in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.